Welcome to Season 2, Episode 27 of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. Today, we'll be speaking with Ian Hathaway, investor, strategic advisor, data scientist, and writer with expertise in technology startups, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. He currently leads investment analytics at Techstars. We can get started. I think we will have a few more people join us, but I think uh, we're ready to get started here. Welcome everyone to our fall discussion series around data and economic impact. We are joined by a very distinguished entrepreneur, Ian Hathaway, who is the co-author of The Startup Community Way, a book on entrepreneurial uh, ecosystems. A little bit about Ian. Uh, Ian is an investor, strategic advisor, data scientist, writer, and an expert in technology startups, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. Ian currently leads investment analytics at Techstars in support of the firm's capital formation, fund management, investment strategy globally. Ian is also an active startup advisor, mentor, and investor, an advisor to venture capital and growth equity firms, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a board member and senior fellow at the Center for American Entrepreneurship. And I can go on and on, but uh, we're thrilled to have you here today, Ian. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, David. All right. So before we get started, uh, just a couple housekeeping rules. Uh, please stay on mute. Uh, feel free to have your camera turned on or off. Uh, uh, Jackie just posted in the chat. If you want to introduce yourself, feel free to introduce yourself, where you're from in the uh, in the chat. And they can, you know, we're not going to do networking today. So that can be a great place for you to uh, learn about uh, fellow entrepreneurs and ecosystem builders from around the country. We have people from over 20 different states on this call today. So uh, the chat can be a great way for you to be able to get to know each other, other uh, entrepreneurship practitioners. And we will have time at the end for some questions. So you can either post your question in the chat or uh, you can raise your hand at the, at the end of uh, the fireside chat. So we'll have some time to take questions. Uh, but we've got a lot to cover and we've got such an amazing uh, voice for entrepreneurship and startup communities. So I'm going to get started. Uh, Ian, if you want to start by just, you know, telling us a little bit about your work. I know I just gave a very broad introduction, but do you want to just give us a quick uh, update on where you are, where you're based, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, happy to. Uh, I'm based in Santa Barbara, California. Um, I didn't grow up here. I actually grew up in the industrial um, heartland uh, of Ohio near Dayton. I actually see Eric Weissman on, on the call. Hi, Eric. Um, and so we've kind of connected about those Ohio roots. And I grew up in a place where entrepreneurship really wasn't a thing. And, you know, a very personal story I'll say is um, watching my father, um, who was sort of, I would say, almost like a savant, a brilliant innovator around uh, transportation logistics, but a horrible entrepreneur, like translating ideation, innovation even to entrepreneurship, just didn't have the wealth, the networks, the experience to really understand. And so um, as the work on this book was unfolding, and as um, I've been working with startup communities around the world, I realized that this is actually kind of a lifelong mission, which is how do we democratize networks, knowledge, and information around venture building, whether you're trying to take a business from five to 10 employees or 10 to 10,000. Um, so this is like very core to my identity uh, and my mission. Um, 
uh, and helping entrepreneurs everywhere succeed. I've done a bunch of different things. Um, I actually started out uh, as an economist um, doing monetary policy. I worked at the Federal Reserve. Uh, I still do work in DC, founded a nonprofit called the Center for American Entrepreneurship, which is um, you know, representing entrepreneurs in, in Washington, DC. I've been an entrepreneur myself. Um, uh, classic case of, you know, wish I had some more knowledge. If I could go back and reach that person at a younger age and, and turn what was, you know, essentially a product business. I, I created a service business, but to create that into a product business, which could have been much larger. Um, yeah, so so have walked that path myself for about for the last um, five or six years I've been investing in and working directly with entrepreneurs. Um, at Techstars, I, uh, I work on our capital team. So we're raising funds and um, those funds get, you know, get put to work through our accelerator programs uh, and through our follow-on investment vehicles. So uh, let's get right into some of our questions here. And uh, yeah. just, you know, as some context here, right before you, we've had Victor Wang uh, come and present at this forum and then Del Gaines from the Kansas City Fed come and present here. And so I'm going to ask you this question that probably a lot of us are curious about. Where did entrepreneurship ecosystem building start from? What's the evolution of that? Uh, as you wrote what about writing your book, did you kind of dive into the history of this? Yeah. So by the way, I'll just say these are some big shoes to follow. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't know that. I think Victor, uh, probably more than anyone else, influenced my thinking. Um, him, I'd say he and Brad Feld uh, have influenced my thinking on this probably more than anyone you know, I think the like sort of the original ecosystem builder was Fred Terman, you know, in the post-war period in Silicon Valley. Um, I think it'd be good to unlearn any lessons we're, we're learning about Silicon Valley today and like kind of look back to that origin um, about what made Silicon Valley a, I don't want to say a completely unlikely candidate to be the best, the strongest innovation ecosystem in the world, but it wasn't clear that that would be the case, right? In fact, Boston was actually better positioned um, during World War II and after, in the, in the post-war period. But there were some key individuals who were committed to making this happen, and Fred Terman was one of them. So I think that's kind of where I would say is the origin of ecosystem building. It wasn't an intent. It was sort of a side effect of saying, I want this to be the greatest place for innovation in the world. Um, tracing sort of the you know, the nomenclature, um, there was a, I actually did this for the book. I was curious where this idea of an entrepreneurial system originated. I was able to go back to the 1980s. There was a Columbia University professor named, uh, I think it was Jonas Pennings. It's in the book, um, who started talking about the external environment, right? We started to observe that um, high growth, high impact entrepreneurship is actually more concentrated than other things like population or even you know other high tech factors, and so this idea about the entrepreneurial ecosystem or well external factors affecting uh, businesses started to take shape. I think the term entrepreneurial ecosystem, I would say, where it started gaining popularity was around 2010 with Daniel Eisenberg um, of Babson College, then Brad Feld, uh, his book, Startup Communities, uh, was published in 2012. And then I think things kind of start taking um, on a life of their own. So ecosystem building has been going on for decades, right? Um, the phraseology and then the intentional practice of ecosystem building, community building around entrepreneurs is really, 
you know, we're only a decade into it. And when I think about it, boy, there's a lot of activity that's gone on in a short amount of time. Yeah. And I'll be happy to report to you that three years back, I was at an international economic development corporation and uh, at a booth, and I was telling somebody about ecosystem building and entrepreneurship ecosystems. And they did like a double take and said, what is that word? I keep hearing about it. Uh, but it, I don't know what that means. And this was an economic developer, right? They look at the world from the lens of PR and how many companies can you bring in uh, you know, business acquisition. And I think we're even the fact that economic development has picked up entrepreneurship ecosystems, I think it's going to board really well because uh, talking to Phil Gaskin at uh, Kaufman, he was talking about how there is like a, a renewed focus on entrepreneurship. Like he's like, we're going to take that word back or those that phrase back and actually bring it back to its original meaning. So uh, I'm gonna uh, kind of, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, we're talking to Ian Hathaway. Jackie just posted the Startup Community Way book in the chat in the link. I'm sure most of you already have it. I have it at, on my podcast. I listened to it in my car. I was doing another refresher today. I love a lot of the concepts. Ian, for, for us, can you give us like the cliff notes? Can you just kind of help break down some of the, the core concepts of the Startup Community Way book for us? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I would say, you know, if we kind of go through this sequentially, you know, there's sort of three parts to the book. We could we could talk about the first, probably the first two would be most interesting to kind of kick off. But the first part, we're just kind of level setting, right? We wanted to, um, you know, provide a place for newcomers to sort of get an understanding of what we're talking about for people more experienced. Maybe they could breeze through those sections. But, you know, in the first in the first part of the book, we talk about, you know, we're sort of laying the, the groundwork for why do we care about the external environment um, where, where entrepreneurs are operating? Why does that matter? Uh, we talk about networks. So um, I think that's fundamentally about ecosystems are about, um, uh, you know, uh, to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine, you know, it's sort of, we're actually in the business of building platforms. And, but you've got a, like a dance floor, right? This is the phrase he uses and, but you got to let the dancers dance. So we're there to build the, you know, we're there to provide the venue and the dance floor, but we're, we're letting the dancers dance. Um, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, fundamentally too, that um, I don't think these are networks in the traditional sense. We're really talking about human relationships or to borrow Victor's phrasing, which is extra rational behavior when people go above and beyond their own narrow short-term interest to create something that's more meaningful, not only for others, but also for themselves. Uh, this is a concept that, you know, I've, you know, Brad Feld has taught me about give first, right? Um, it's not this naive altruism. We're, we're helping each other, but we're actually helping ourselves in the process. We're just not using this transactional ledger along the way you know, to keep to keep tabs on. I've done this for you. You've done this for me. No, we want entrepreneurs to succeed, yeah. and when they succeed, so do we. So we kind of walk through a lot of that. You know, kind of the theory and data behind um, density, like why we want large networks, whether those are physical in person um, or virtual. Um, we lay out. Uh, we actually have two full chapters where we talk about you know the individual actors and factors that are involved, right? The resources that entrepreneurs need and the people and organizations that are providing those resources. We built a little framework that I think is useful called the seven capitals. This was in response to, I mean, this is basically everywhere. Well, if we had more capital, if we had more external capital, entrepreneurs would be more successful, right? So 
first of all, there's always going to be an imbalance in the supply and demand uh, for, for capital, but there's for financial capital. So whether that's angel venture capital or blending, right? Um, but we wanted to sort of highlight that there are other other resources, other sources of value that you can and should try to influence, right? So we talk about intellectual capital, sort of ideas, technologies, human capital, skills, right? Uh, talent development. Um, there's the you know things like physical capital, which in this in this modern era that can be everything from broadband to making your communities a more interesting place to live, right? There's a well documented track record of um, in the knowledge economy of, of, of talent wanting to go to places that are interesting and are good places to live. So one way to attract entrepreneurs to your city or to, you know, to, yeah, to attract people back home as well is wouldn't necessarily be, let's build a new on, an entrepreneurship center. It might actually be, let's rejuvenate our downtown or let's make our schools better, you know, um, highlighting some of those factors. And then we talk about, you know, network capital, which kind of brings everything together and cultural capital, which permeates everything, right? Which I think is sort of this ethos of people wanting to come together and be helpful. That's really what ecosystem building is all about. Um, and then kind of the final thing I would say about that first part of the book is, we, we draw the distinction between communities and ecosystems. And I would sort of, the way I might describe this is, it's the lens through which we're applying ourselves in this work. So um, as an example, right, entrepreneurs need um, lots of help from ecosystem, whether it's uh, legal services or advice, um, you know, external capital, whatever you want to call it, there are uh, valuable resources in those networks that can be exchanged in a purely economic basis, right? I'm doing this for you, you're giving me, you're paying me, or I'm getting equity in your company or whatever it is. But then to go back to, you know, that Victor's term of extra rational behavior at the community, uh, we describe it as layers, right, of these systems among systems, um, it's really a different motivation. And I think in that space, when we come and represent ourselves, especially as individuals, right? Like Ian, the mentor, who's in front of an entrepreneur for you know, 30 minutes providing free advice and help uh, and guidance and maybe connecting you, I'm there as an individual representing what's best for you. When I have to put on my work hat, it might be different, right? I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors. And so, the point being there that just drawing this distinction between what lens are we applying ourselves in this work and, and, and are we representing ourselves as individuals uh, or the organizations that, that we work for? And, and those distinctions can be really subtle, but it's good to have that self-awareness um, when we're bringing ourselves into to helping entrepreneurs. So I was at a round table just before this in Pasco County here in Florida and one of the things that you talked about was the point of discussion is how do we create more arts and uh, festivals to create uh, a sense of you know, pride in place where people from other cities and counties can come and then for ourselves to have a, a, a downtown we can uh, fall in love with, et cetera. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I'll give you an anecdote. In fact, it's in the book. Um, the mayor of Jerusalem swears. <laughs> that one of the biggest things that he did to improve the entrepreneurial ecosystem was having rock uh, band competitions. Because part of the problem with Jerusalem is that it wasn't as cool as Tel Aviv. And as Jerusalem got cooler, talent started going more to, to, Tel Aviv, uh, to Jerusalem. 
And he swears that was it, right? Like Jerusalem is cooler now and therefore more entrepreneurs want to be here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I thought in Tel Aviv, the the beachside tents where they serve real, you know, hot kebabs and stuff was the kind of the pole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and as we've seen from COVID, people have, are having more options. And, and so I think cities, it's not always, when I speak directly to, to policymakers or those working in agencies and governments, it's, it's not always the, the direct policies that are most influential. It's more of like the stay in your lane, do the things that only governments can do, but do those really well. Um, and, and some of these solutions are just the non-obvious thing. So I'm going to ask you what's your one favorite principle from the book. But before I do that, I'm going to share four takeaways that I have that uh, I love uh, about the book that I see in my daily life that we have to keep kind of uh, repeating till people actually get it. So I'm going to kind of share that. Uh, For those of you who are just joining us, I'm talking to Ian Hathaway, co-author of the Startup Community Way. Uh, Jackie put a link to the book in the chat. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, grabbing the book from Amazon if you don't already have, and I highly doubt if you all don't already have that book, uh, just given that you're practitioners of uh, ecosystem building. So uh, I'll just share, uh, Ian, what are the, for me, the things that really stand out in, in my line of work. Uh, the, the first one is that it's not a zero-sum game, that uh, we're not all competing for the same dollars. You know, one of the things that uh, gets highlighted a lot is that because a lot of entrepreneurship support organizations tend to rely on grand dollars, et cetera, that you win, I lose mentality when we can actually collectively go after a much bigger part of the pie. So uh, that zero sum game, that that really stood out to me to think about it as a positive sum game. Uh, and also to look at not competing with other ecosystems when you have like, you know, the startup genome report, et cetera. There's not like, you know, the ranking is not a way to say, you know, I want to beat another city. That's another thing that frequently comes up. Uh, and then the two other things are don't ask for permission, uh, and also in a downturn, entrepreneurship is a great way to kind of revitalize uh, your economy. So those are like my big takeaways that I love just in my line of work. What's your one big takeaway that, you know, that you're most passionate about? Oh, wow. Just one. Well, first of all, I want to say. The whole book is your baby, I know, but you got to pick one quality you love about your baby. Oh, I love all parts of my baby equally. Uh I actually, first, let me just respond first by saying, um, like, I just had real time this morning, some of those things you just said, uh, I'll try to keep it anonymous, but discussion going on in a state uh, about doing a program to help, um, to help get entrepreneurs ready for sort of, you know, post-university experience, raising capital, whether it's going through a program like Techstars, raising from angel investors or whatever. Um, But the immediate idea was, cool, lots of universities want to do this in this state. Why don't we bring them together and run it as a multi-university cohort? And a lot of resistance. No, no, no. We're going to own this. This is going to be our thing. And and I've seen this play out so many places, whether it's a state, whether it's a, you know, a large metropolitan area, I've seen this play out in Los Angeles, whatever it is that I believe by driving all these things together, the entrepreneurs will actually benefit and we'll see all these sort of this cross-pollination that we could never predict. Um, so just underscoring your points that you made. And, and I guess um, maybe my favorite point about all of this is, um, 
that I would underscore everything is it's this, this broader concept where we talk about the illusion of control and our, our framework of complex systems. Uh, the reality is we barely understand the discipline of ecosystem building, you know, and like I said, a lot of people have been, a lot of very smart people have been working on this for a sustained period of time. Um, it's inherently uncertain, right? We don't know often what is going to work. It can only be, it can only emerge through the process of trial and error and having a long-term commitment. And I think that last piece, the long-term commitment, the feedback loops that, that we need to know what's valuable, what's working and what's not, take a long time. And that I think is the that's the challenge, right? So if you're an ecosystem builder, you know this and you know this in your bones, but the people who are funding you probably don't. And they need, they want hard metrics and they want them right away. And it just doesn't compute, right? And so that's that's like that's a that's just like a really tough challenge um, to get around. The second thing I would say about that too is that just to take some pressure off of yourselves, like. I think ecosystem builders are getting burned out because of because of these dynamics and a need to feel like they have to deliver the solution that they have to be the one uh, that we have to get to these tangible outcomes and it's it's um, it's a false narrative because again uh, you know people who have been doing this for a long time and I've had the benefit of seeing it across multiple geographies. Um, yeah, there's some patterns and yeah, we've got some methodologies for surfacing, but I can surfacing what answers might be, but we don't know. We don't know what's going to be impactful in one specific place versus another. I'll give you one example and then I'll stop ranting uh, in Buffalo, New York, right? A lot of resources were being thrown at the ecosystem, you know, varying degrees of success for programs or um uh, or, or funding mechanisms, but one very simple activity was a huge leverage point in this ecosystem, and we talk about leverage points in the book, um, was something called Open Coffee Club. It was every week, every Tuesday morning, same, same time, same place, open to anyone. If you say you're a part of the startup community, you're welcome. Um, I don't know, what is a room full of like coffee for a room full of people cost a couple hundred bucks a, a week. I don't know. Um, but it was a huge leverage point in creating all these connections. Why? Because Buffalo is an inherently collaborative place, right? It's spread out over a wide geographic area. And there wasn't really anything that was pulling all of these things together outside of a particular program, right? This incubator had its network. This, uh, this uh, startup competition had its network, but there wasn't anything that was democratizing all of this. Now that exact intervention in 10 other cities could have no impact. I don't know, but it worked in that one. And the way to figure that out is to try lots of different things and let look for those feedback cycles. And when you see them, then to double down and lean into them. So broad, broad based statement of like, it's very similar to entrepreneurship. You have to go in with that curious mindset, follow the data where it's leading you, right? And be patient. It takes time to change behaviors. It takes time for companies to grow and reach scale. Um, not the easiest message to sell, especially to, to, you know, 
to governments or other funders who are looking for that ROI in a tangible and immediate way. Yeah. In fact, uh, I have a funny anecdote about it. I think we should start by telling these funders, you want us to support entrepreneurs. Let's also be entrepreneurs because I was at an event where uh, we were asked to, as it was an ecosystem building event, we were all given a business model canvas and half of the room was like, wait a second, we've taught our teams how to do business model canvas, but to do it for our own work, we've never thought about it. And I think, you know, bringing that culture of entrepreneurship into ecosystem building and like you said, giving ourselves permission to say, you know what, let's go make those mistakes. Uh, Victor talks about it as the long game, like it takes a decade or more to build that trust and, and pathways into the community. So um, I think that really yeah. is let, let, me, um, let me give one example on this too, which I think is a really powerful one. And apologies for if I'm emphasizing too much on sort of venture-backed entrepreneurship, but it's where I spend a lot of my time. We can pivot away from that. Um, I think it's other, applicable across the board. Yeah, yeah, but there's an example in, actually this is again in the book, <laughs> but it's um, uh, from Indianapolis, right? So Scott Dorsey is one of the founders of Exact Target, a digital marketing company founded in 1999 or 2000 um, in Indianapolis. Really terrible time to found a tech company. Dot-com <laughs> bubble was bursting and a really bad place. Indianapolis, there was like, if you look at the data, there's like no venture capital, no one building businesses like this really in Indianapolis. Um, fast forward, you know, uh, 15 years, Exact Target is bought by um, Salesforce for $2.5 billion. Along the way, Scott and his colleagues and people building that company and others began forming a community, right? Um, you know, fast forward to today, Indianapolis has Salesforce Tower, 2,000 employees there. And you can see when you look at venture funding trends um, over time, Indianapolis is one of the fastest risers, okay? Nationally, even globally, depending on how you want to look at it, even globally. Unlikely place, you would have said that in 2000. Think about the time I just discussed. From the time the company was founded to the liquidity event was 15 years. Then that wealth, you know, knowledge, networks, whatever was developed by all those leaders gets recycled back in. Scott's got his firm, High Alpha. We're talking 20 years. And now, and they're starting to see the flywheel, right? And they're, they're increasing exponentially. Yeah. That's, I don't know. It's a hard economic development plan to sell, but that's a, that's a great example of where this occurred. Like, and and this plays out over and over. It happens in Silicon Valley. It happens in all lots of other places. They just have the benefit of they've been at it so much longer, and there's been so many more successes that it's it's hard to realize what's actually going on underneath. But I think it's a great example to point to, um, especially because people, you know, that aren't in large coastal cities can can maybe resonate more deeply with a place from the heartland. Yep. So uh, for those of you who have questions, uh, feel free to put them in the chat. I'm going to monitor the chat and uh, take a couple of questions uh, from the chat. Uh, I've got one uh, more broad-based question, Ian. We can tackle that or got other questions as well. But uh, can you speak a little bit, because this question I get asked a lot around how do you build a culture for entrepreneurship? And you talked about like the coffee connections, things like that. Uh, are there other intentional ways uh, in terms of principles, maybe not even like the, the practical side of it, but how do you intentionally create a culture of entrepreneurship if a city wants to embark on this journey? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's sort of the first thing, I guess I would say leadership, 
uh, of individuals and normalization of failure and the realities of entrepreneurship, right? And so um, I think people underestimate what's actually required to start shifting uh, mindset in a community. The major challenge, as we just talked about, is the timeline, right? It's really hard to change behavior. It's, it's even hard. It takes longer to change mentality, right? But the best way to do it is to just start uh, being a representation, a living embodiment of that, right? So if you say, look, startup communities are about helping entrepreneurs succeed. Simple. What does that mean? It could be making an introduction. It could be a shoulder to cry on, right? It could be buying someone a beer or a cup of coffee. Like whatever that is, just do it, right? Um, you know, as an individual. And the the second thing I was talking about, uh, about normalization is just to use this language, right? Like failure, I don't know. I, I wish I had a better word because I feel like that's a dirty word that scares people, but it's really, um, I don't know. I use the word feedback. Like I want to, I want to understand things. And so I have to, in this world, because there is no blueprint, I have to attempt them first to understand. So maybe learning is the right term. I don't know, but just to normalize this thing about how we fail. One way to do that, uh, and I guess, um, you know, maybe I'm championing my own ideas and book too much. One of the things I try, I try to put, you know, we try to put a lot of examples in the book that aren't about entrepreneurship. And one of my favorite ones is about raising a child. This is, I lean on this a lot. Because a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people you would be interacting with are familiar with this experience of, huh, I thought it was going to be this way. These are my rules. I'm going to tell you this is the way. And there's a, another human involved who doesn't agree with that, who is very different, right? And, and maybe what worked with this one child has no resonance with the other. I mean, I have two children and I can tell you very different <laughs> approaches, and my, my mentality of what's best for them, I mean, you know, they're young. And so, you know, I have to caveat this a little bit, but they're young and they're individuals. And so what, what my job is to do is to set some guidelines, obviously at a young age to protect them, right. And to provide for them, but to try to create the vehicle within which they can maximize their potential. And that's kind of how I see all of this work um, that we're not in control, right. And that we're there to sort of, um, provide that foundation and help people along on their journey, even if it ends up in a lack of success. And so anyway, that's maybe more of a tangent, uh, maybe get a little off track, but I think individual leadership, you're in control of that immediately. You can just start leading, getting a banding together with a small group of people and just starting to initiate change, creating a new center of gravity, especially where in communities where there's one, there's a one-stop shop and maybe those people aren't serving the entrepreneurs, right, as well. Um, but they've been very good at, at capturing resources like this, this kind of archetype exists in a lot of places. And then the second thing is normalizing entrepreneurship. You said like applying it to your own business model, being experimental, having very high touch with your customer, which is the entrepreneur, and, and just sort of incorporating these ideas and concepts into your activities in your language. Awesome. We have some uh, great questions in the chat, uh, Ian. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, uh, but I'll tell you, I had a child the same time I quit my company, uh, quit corporate America to start my business. And there are so many parallels, starting with how difficult it is to come up with a good name. 
<laughs> so many parallels in every aspect of oh so true <laughs> so okay so i'm gonna have some of them actually unmute if you're comfortable with it uh yeah uh, i'll have them uh, unmute and actually ask the questions um so that if they want they can expound on it so uh kristen why don't i uh if you don't mind unmuting yourself and and asking your question please Hi, Ian. Um, my question is a little bit about burnout, <laughs> which I know is mentioned in the book. Um, I think we've had here in Oklahoma City a number of um, entrepreneurs, specifically entrepreneurs, who were really involved about five, six years ago when things were really getting up and running in Oklahoma City. And now they're at the point where a year or two ago they got burned out. And now we kind of have this new energy I was just wondering if you had any feedback or thoughts on how to re-engage stakeholders that may not be a part of the current ecosystem. And then if you just have any other thoughts on how to avoid burnout. Yeah, so burnout of the entrepreneurs or the ecosystem builders or all of the above. I think everyone who's trying to change things. So that could be a combination of multiple people. Yeah, well, first of all, I know two great entrepreneurs in your community, um, Garrett and Drew from Pipe Dream. Do you know them? I do not. Oh, well, <laughs> I would be happy to make the connection. Um, they definitely uh, are interested in, in, well, making Oklahoma City the greatest place for entrepreneurs on earth, right? That's what everyone's goal should be. Um, I think burnout is <clears throat> not something you can avoid. Um, entrepreneurs are a freak-like obsession with their companies and their products, like it's impossible to turn that off. Um, but I think knowing, and this is where I, I believe that community is so critical and having the infrastructure in place. And by infrastructure, I mean people who are committed to this in a consistent permanent basis, that there's not one point of failure, right? That you can't have the startup gal or the startup guy in your in your community, you need the startup gals and the startup guys, right? Um, you need many such people for this purpose. But for entrepreneurs, it's very uh, it's very natural um, for them to sort of fall off the grid for a bit. Like you know, they're building, their, especially early on, they're sort of heads down. They've checked out of the community. But to know that there are pathways for them to you know to to reemerge and that there's something there that, that they know there's a value um, to plug back into. Um, this is also why growing a community can be uh, really important so that they have a number of people looking over their shoulder to say, hey, uh, you know, time to take a break, like come to come to this meetup with me. Um, I think for community builders, I feel like one of the best things going on that I see is the startup community community right? So or ecosystem builders, like some of the work that Victor has done to create a discipline around that. Um, because a lot of these people are just, it's a thankless job in so many ways. Um, and I, I know that a lot of folks in these roles, especially doing it full time, feel like profits in their homeland, they're crazy people, right? And so to have this community of other people who are similarly crazy and underappreciated to plug into, that's a great system of support, you know? Um, and so, yeah, just understand that it's gonna be, it's, it's. I don't really know how you avoid it. Um, 
there's a lot of context switching in these roles, a lot of intensity, a lot of pressure to succeed with scarce resources. Um, but it's just to grow, it's just to grow a network of people who, who you can connect with uh, in a deeply empathetic way through lived experience doing the same work. Um, and just to, you know, to contribute to creating that, um, whether it's locally or, or across other communities. All right. I'm going to go to uh, Nick. I'll just say, Ian, one of the things I personally do to prevent burnout, because like you said, entrepreneurs, we just go, go, go. Like it's hard to find that off switch is I tell myself that uh, this is the long game. So you got to pace yourself. Like you got to find a second hobby or a second thing to do that forces the turn, the, the turn off of the switch. So like I play, I play tennis. So when I'm playing tennis, it's hard to think about work and entrepreneurship. And then you have to think about winning, but that's a very common question we get asked a lot because you're constantly raising money. You're constantly yeah. trying to justify the money, constantly trying to get buy-in, bring stakeholders together. And then on top of it, like I said, it's a thankless job. People still think you suck at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and in my case, thankfully, I have a, an amazing wife who threatens me with divorce if I don't get away <laughs> from my computer because of the ugly person overwork makes me. Like, I'm going to divorce you if you don't go for like, in fact, I need to do that today. So that's a reminder. The, All right. The threat um, of divorce this, is the this session, do not check your email. Go straight for the bike ride. <laughs> yeah, actually, right. I will. I, yeah. I, I promise I will do that, actually. Yeah. All right, Nick, I'll ask a question. So Nick wants to know, when approaching funders or partners, uh, he's heard of some weird lo illogical argument. If people wanted it here, we'd already have it. What are some broad ways to secure resources for entrepreneurial support? Uh, supply to drive demand. So, so basically, I think his question is- Yeah, I get it. Yeah, you get it. I get it. Yeah, so I think the question is, <clears throat> I believe there's a, a there, I perceive a market need for X. Funders say, cool, I guess, why doesn't it already exist? Um, which I don't really understand that argument either. Um, so bring them the data. Right, the the, I think so many problems in this work, including the funding gap, I guess, um, can be solved by engaging um, more deeply, higher frequency, over a longer period of time with entrepreneurs. It's like customer discovery, right? So, in a TechStars accelerator, uh, I'm you know, it's slightly hyperbolic, but beating the CEOs over your head, like how many. I need you to interview 300 customers by the end of this month, or you don't know what your market is. And I promise you, you think you know what it is today and you don't. Um, and so if you, maybe you already feel like you have a sense, but collect data on that, right? So I've spoken to a hundred entrepreneurs and I've, you know, I had, I had, I had coffee and spent 30 minutes with a hundred entrepreneurs over the last, or let's call it 90 entrepreneurs over the last 90 days here's, I'm organizing my thoughts in this way. Here's what, here's what the market gap is, right? Does, how many of, how many of you really know? Like, I'm sure you, you're right about some things. You're probably wrong about some others, but you're probably missing some things. And so I always feel like bringing the data, right? Just say, look, here's what the market is saying exists. Here's my solution for doing that. By the way, look for very, very low cost or no cost ways to begin making progress on some of those interventions you want to propose, that's providing feedback. Same thing with an entrepreneur. 
once you show me some customer traction, then we talk about fundraising, not the other way around, right? Because people don't want to just um, put money into a black hole. They want to make sure that there's some traction there. And so follow that same guidance as we would with an entrepreneur, like know who your customer is, understand that market deeply, look, look for ways to get tangible traction and report that back. So the next question here, uh, and let me make sure, um, Felicia, if you can, if you're able to unmute, I uh, would definitely like you to answer this question. Um, but the, the next question, and let me see, yeah, uh, is, and this is something that we're very passionate about, Ian, maybe this is your next book, <laughs> because no, <laughs> so, so here's the thing, you know, we, we've, you've established uh, some of the principles for the startup community way, but what about when we're trying to uplift underrepresented communities? Sometimes the challenges there are very different from the obvious ones, right? Because that's why they've kind of been pushed back because the, the way we've built our communities sometimes don't address the needs of underrepresented communities. So uh, Felicia, if you can unmute yourself, I, I I love your question, and if you can't, I'm happy to read it for you. Sure. Yeah, yeah go so, ahead, Felicia. I'm just thinking about um, entrepreneurs who are maybe coming from lower, um, maybe lower wealth communities, or who maybe don't have that much personal capital to work with, or per, you know, a lot of a lot of financial resources to work with. Um, and this question came to me as you were asking, or talking about the Jerusalem example and making the community cool and bringing in, you know, other things that, you know, might draw attention to your community. But what happens when the community gets popular and maybe gets too expensive for the entrepreneur to keep operating or living in that area? Are there any strategies or supports that need to be put in place first to make sure that they don't get displaced? Yeah, so I think there's kind of maybe, maybe two parts of that. Um, uh, you know, the second part feels to me more like a public policy question of how do we, you know, how do we manage costs in large cities, right? Like I lived in San Francisco um, up till 2014 and watched this play out live, complete deterioration of the quality of life in that city because of the, the concept you described. I think more broadly about how do we make startup communities more inclusive um, I don't know if you heard the very beginning, um, Felicia, I was talking about my childhood. You know, I grew up in a community, I was born in 1980, there's an age reveal, um, and that year, population peaked in my community, right? Um, it's been on the steady decline since, uh, went from 16,000 people to 12,000, right? I grew up in a small town where things haven't been going well, um, and it's so I know um, as I've started to function in more, you know, global, you know, coastal uh, networks, it's, it's interesting how little people who have lived their entire lives in those networks, how little they understand about a place where I came from. Similarly, um, across any number of different dimensions for, for underrepresented communities, right? We just have to have more participation. So we have to be actively welcoming people into leadership positions from a broad range of communities. It can't just be, you know, the Harvard Business Show running everything, right? Um, uh, we have to have, yeah, diverse leaders in our ranks because it's impossible for people to imagine what life is like in other communities and how to get to provide inroads for people 
um, to join broader startup communities, right? It's not a matter of having stronger black or brown or women or whatever communities, that's part of it, right? Because there's this similarity um, we, we create a bondedness with people who are like us, but it's a matter of bringing all of these pieces together, right? We don't just want to have stronger rural or urban networks. We want to have all of these things linking up. And so the best way that I can imagine to do that is just to be extremely winning in an active sense and getting, you know, cultivating leaders and bringing all of these things together um, because they end up existing in isolation or they don't exist at all. Thank you. I will uh, move to uh, one question from Scott. Scott, do you want to uh, unmute yourself? Ian, thanks for your contribution in this sector. I think it's invaluable to have conversations like this because it adds a third dimension to the books and research, not only to the money you help steer around with Techstars and others, but there are two um, diffusion issues that I'd like to have you consider. One is a workbook to go with the resource guide, I'll call it the thesis that you have, that can be used more by stakeholders than having to read the whole book. So it's a workbook. And the other is um, capture cases. So if each city did a case every two or three years that you think were good lessons to learn from, and bundled them up and said, these are five that would really support this tenant that we're talked about in the book. Let them tell their story, but you kind of pull it together with a architecture. 100% agree. Thank you, Scott. Um, <clears throat> you know, we did have a plan to do some kind of a workbook, but the reality is just truthfully, I got completely burned out on writing. Um, I used to be a prolific writer and I realized just last week, I haven't written a blog post in a year. Like I just, I can't do it. I cannot put pen to paper. It's just a reality. And I've been thinking a lot about why that is, um, but it, it doesn't really matter because it's where I am right now. Um, but I think there's uh, to just <laughs> to go back to this conceptually, first of all, there's a lot that could be done on developing a course for this. Um, you know, actually, I'll brought him up before, but Eric Weissman designed a course at Miami University in Oxford, um, Ohio, that, you know, I think is a, Eric is the person to talk to about this. He's the only person that I know of who's designed a college curriculum course on startup communities. Um, so here, here on that, I mean, the book itself, uh, depending on your perspective, can be a little dense. And so how can we get those insights out without, my goal is that people will understand the most important lessons without having to have ever read a word of the book. Like that's a win for me, so I agree. Um, so, so we've definitely thought about it. We just haven't taken action. You know, that's all there is to it. Um, second thing on stories, oh my God, I, I, I could not agree with you more. Um, we tried to tell stories in the book. We ended up throwing out a whole half of the, like this was a huge multi-year project and we threw away like 40,000 words um, that had something like 20 different more case study examples. It was just too, it's already too big. Um, but one idea that we didn't follow through on was, wouldn't it be awesome if we organized, if we solicited 
essays from people that told a story. If we sort of organize a framework of like, let's say, I don't know, five to 10 or 20 concepts, and it was like an online living document that was people saying, writing, a, writing from their own experience about a concept, um, not just to like add more proof points to what we believe to be true, but because it's really valuable for learning and it gives you a connection point to talk to someone about that, right? So I think, you know, kind of going back to our overall framework of complex systems and the example I used about Buffalo saying this one thing worked really well there. And actually it was kind of an accident. Like we didn't really plan that to be such an impactful thing. And it might not work in 10 other cities. That's why we need storytelling because it sparks ideation. And it's like, oh, that's a proof point. Maybe I should talk to that person about how, how did they actually arrive at that? What was the real story? And so we cannot have enough stories about this stuff. The, the, like, you know, the concepts in the book like are concepts. And um, so I think they, they cannot be absorbed as much as like an infinite amount of stories could be. And so I 100% agree, um, I guess just, so far, I have not been uh, an active solution to that problem, but um, I would love for it to exist in the world. Thank you, Scott, for, for bringing that up. Maybe you can be the wiki master. <laughs> People keep giving you jobs, Ian, and you keep denying these jobs. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, there, I'm there to support um, for now. But. Well, since you volunteered, Eric, Eric, do you have a comment or at least a plug for your work with Miami University? I know Mark's here as well. Yeah, sure. Hey, hey Ian, good to see you. Good to, good to see everybody on this. But uh, yeah, Mark and I just uh, got back from the Global, Cons Global Consortium of Entrepreneurship Centers, uh, this big conference in Baltimore of people that are running university facilities all over the country. And we talked about this class that we launched pre-COVID. So we went through all of that, but, but uh, it's about, um, about this field of, of ecosystem building and, uh, you know, from a practitioner standpoint. So I ran a group in, in Cincinnati called Centrifuge. Uh, I'm now in Greenville, South Carolina, doing similar work at a company called Next. But it is, um, it is a thing of supporting entrepreneurs. And especially when you talk about teaching entrepreneurs, you know, the, the train just has one locomotive, you know, sometimes two founders, but, but there's a lot more people, there's a lot more, you know, cars on the train. Uh, so those are people that found startups and people that, that want to work for startups, but ecosystem builders are the front of the train. We do the condition setting. We think, you know, we get things right and, and um, make sure that path is clear. So uh, it's thanks to people like uh, Ian and Brad and, and Victor and all the other names that we dropped earlier uh, to keep saying that, that, that we as economic development folks that, that care about growth and vibrancy of a, of a community need to, to consider what, what help to startups looks like. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, Eric, if you don't mind putting your contact information in the chat, if you don't mind uh, for you and Mark, so that if people want to know about, you know, starting uh, formal uh, kind of education in the communities, what that looks like. So Dude. we're running out of time here, Ian. Uh, I have just one last question for you, if you don't mind. And then Jackie's got some information about the next panel. Uh, Ian, one thing I didn't touch on, and this is, the, you know, a series on data. Can you just give us a 30 second soundbite on, <laughs> on the measurement tab? We just got, you know, uh, I love these conversations. This is what this community is about. But uh, can you just give us a 30 second soundbite on the measurement trap? Uh, unless you're, uh, you know, you feel like you've covered it. 
Does it have to be 30 seconds? It can be as long as you want. I mean, it could be 30 minutes. I won't do that. <laughs> no. Just like wave when I'm talking too long. Uh, no. So, oh, this is a favorite of mine. So the, we talk, the, we, we lay, we create, you know, we, we talk about this concept we call the measurement trap in the book. And it's this idea that, um, you know, things that are more tangible and therefore easy to measure end up getting prioritization rather than the things that actually matter. Um, a lot of what we're tracking are outcomes of processes that occurred in the past. Those are the processes we want to try to understand and influence so we can have more of those outputs. Um, you know, we talked about for, you know, this like almost knee jerk reaction to be comparative and use rankings systems, um, which I understand because they can be kind of fun. Um, they're easy to digest. It's a single number. Where are we? Are we moving up or down? Um, but I don't think they're really helpful uh, in understanding how to improve our ecosystems. What I want to look at is where are we going over time in our own city, uh, not what's going on over there. Um, because we're also not, those methodologies aren't actually helping us understand what's driving progress to begin with, right? Um, and so what I like to think about um, is it's not, and it's not to say don't do those things. It's to say, fine, do those things, but do these six other things. One of the most underlooked um, or overlooked things that, uh, that I uh, have been involved with has been just tracking, um, trying to get at more outcomes-based uh, metrics for specific activities, right? So let's say you have, oh, let's use the coffee club um, example. Why are we doing that? We're, we're doing coffee club because we want people to meet each other, right? People who maybe haven't uh, met before, people who maybe know each other, but it's not on a deepening basis. We're trying to create lasting relationships. Uh, and the reason we want to do that is because it's not because we want just a bunch of people in the room. We want them to go and do some things outside of that room. So how do you capture that? Well, the, the, the typical way that this would be done in metrics is sort of, well, we had, you know, 12 events, this many people came, check, right? Well, wouldn't it be better if we were tracking some of the sentiment that was going on, if we were looking at even within that construct, who's um, going, going a little bit deeper and saying, okay, how many people are returning, right? What's the rate of people who come once and then don't come again? And those kind of things going deeper, but really then reaching back out, um, whether it's for people that are coming, you know, uh, additional times or capturing email addresses and to say, Six months down the road, you went to these events. What were some impacts that happened? Did you form new relationships? Did you meet someone important as a result of these? We want to get at those outcomes. And those are the kind of things you can play back to say, well, yeah, we, we have all these outputs I can show you, right? But we had these huge impacts. These are the impacts. And I think it's kind of a dance between providing hard data and then and anecdotal stories because first of all, you're not going to be able to capture it all. And secondly, this is a game of, um, it's not about the quantities. It's about those, it's about the outliers, right? And so you could have 30 coffee events. And if you have one meaningful change, these two people met and they 
you know, they're on their way to creating a business that employs 50 people. That might take one or two years. That might take some time to unfold. Um, but that is worth it if nothing else happened, right? And that's a really, that's another challenge we haven't talked about is about the nonlinear behavior that goes on, right? Like how one really big thing actually makes all the other small things, it's worth it. Um, and so just thinking about those, those kind of uh, dynamics, um, not just about activities and outputs, but like outcomes getting a little closer to that. Um, and whether that was a part of the program's goals. So I get it on like high level sort of job creation or venture capital, like fine, I get it. But like, we're not really influencing those things because there are so many other things going on and they're actually the result of things that occurred in the past anyway. So I'll stop there because that's, um, that's probably a lot already, but, um, but yeah, I'm oh, sorry. One more thing to say, I think what we really want to influence is behavior and mindset attitudes. Right. And so survey people on those things, right? Like is, is this, do people feel like, do entrepreneurs feel like it's easier to get connected to folks that they need to get connected to? Do we feel like the attitude around risk-taking is changing, right? Sentimental things like on their own, these aren't proof points, but if you take the whole thing together and take this prag a pragmatic approach, then I think it starts to tell you a story um, about what's really happening. It's really hard to do this um, for all the reasons we've discussed, um, but you know, in the book, we, you know, we dedicate a chapter, we lay out a lot of different approaches. Some of them might seem insane. Some of them might seem very easy to do. Uh, there are more, but, um, you know, that's kind of how I think about it. And, um, you know, I, I can really empathize with the pain associated with doing that and the need to deliver, uh, especially sometimes to justify the existence of your own organization. So um, I'll just end there um, and say thank you for for spending some time with me today. Yeah, absolutely. And just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it or it's not the right thing to do. We'll figure it out, but at least to acknowledge that just, you know, just putting out job growth is not good enough because it doesn't actually directly influence what we're doing. So uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. We could go on for another hour, you know, kick back, but then I cannot be responsible for your divorce. So I have to stop here. <laughs> I'm sure I'll figure out another way to get in trouble, but uh uh, so yeah so thank you so much for joining us thank you all for joining us next month we have an amazing panel of ecosystem builders from across the country who are actually catalyzing economic impact uh in communities uh, that we want to kind of highlight so that's next month please feel free to register uh please feel free to grab uh ian's book uh, i love it it's it's on my audio podcast when i have a doubt i kind of like rewind to the chapter and like listen to grab key concepts uh, and Ian, how can people get in touch with you if after this they want to kind of you know ask questions or just follow your journey uh yeah so i have a website that may or may not be updated it's ian <laughs> as we talked about ianhathaway.org you can email me um ian.hathaway at techstars.com or um i'm on twitter at ian hathaway awesome we've got some of the links in the chat Thank you all for joining us. Hope you have a good rest of your day and we'll talk again next month. Thank you all. All right. Thanks, David. See you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Ian. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Ponrash. Special thanks to Ian Hathaway for joining us. 
Show notes and cover art by creative director Jackie Dietrich. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.